Right, would you like to grab a Bible? If you're near the end of the road, grab a Bible and turn to page 1213. Page 1213. Now, as you're doing that, last week we started a new sermon series going through the book of James. So we're in James chapter 1, page 1213. And Jamie brilliantly kicked off our, our sermon series last Sunday, helping us think about the danger of being double-minded, danger of being double Hearted, And you may remember, if you were here last Sunday, Jamie gave a, an illustration, it's going to come up, of um, t- two escalators side by side. Two escalators side by side, and if you like, one of them going upwards and one of them going downwards. And he painted the picture of him with his log legs, uh, one foot on one escalator going up, one on the other escalator going down, and of course, you very quickly do the splits and it's rather painful. And the danger is, so often he was saying, that for us, and this is what James is saying at the beginning of James chapter 1, for us... We are double-hearted. We're double-minded. We have one foot on God, but one foot on the world. Our hearts are split in two directions, and that ends up in all sorts of disaster. And as we go through the second half of James chapter 1 now, we're going to be thinking not about the danger of being double-minded or double-hearted, but the danger of deception. The danger of you or I being deceived. Now, as I say that word, just as I say it, the danger of deception, it doesn't sound particularly pleasant, does it? We don't like to be deceived. It's quite a challenge. But actually, we're going to see that James is saying that so many of us, we are deceived. And it's not like we're deceived about something sort of quite peripheral and not really very important. Actually, he says we are deceived about three really fundamental things. He says we're deceived about God, we're deceived about the Bible, and we're deceived about our faith. So, would you have a look, page 1213, I'm going to read this passage, and as I do, uh, just spot the three times this word deceived comes up in our passage. So, James chapter 1, starting at verse 13, towards the bottom of the page. James writes this. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word, but does not do what it says, is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they'll be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Let's pray, shall we? Father of heavenly lights, thank you that every good and perfect gift 
comes from you. And Heavenly Father, by the power of your Spirit, we pray that you would help each one of us here this evening to humbly accept the word that is planted in each one of us tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So deceived about three things. First thing, we're deceived about God. Picture the scene, if you would. It's about 20 years ago now. I was working as a management consultant. I was 22, 23, you know, new recent graduate, uh, single, and I was staying at this swanky hotel uh, with about 20 other colleagues. At the time, it was the sort of dot-com bubble. The economy was good. Business was good. The hotel bar was open. The drinks were flowing. The drinks were free. Everyone was getting drunk. Everyone except me. Now, I was tempted to get drunk, very tempted, but I didn't. It would have been fun, I thought. But after a couple of hours of talking to drunk people, which after a bit gets a little bit boring, um, uh, eventually I went back to my hotel room and I reflected. God, he's a little bit of a killjoy, isn't he? But at least my room in the hotel was pretty good, though. I mean, it was huge, it was very nice, it was plush. The bed was so big, it was wider than it was long. And so I decided to have a time. I hadn't prayed or read the Bible at all that day, so I thought I'd I'd have a bit of time praying and reading the Bible before I go to bed. So you can picture the scene, angelic picture it was, I've got to say. Um, There I was in my pajamas, uh, sitting in bed, and I was reading the Bible. When there was suddenly a knock on my door, and in came, slightly staggered, a very attractive colleague of mine. And she sprawled herself across my bed, the one that was wider than it was long. Now, I was tempted to take her up on her advances. Very tempted. But I didn't. It would have been fun, I thought. But eventually, after encouraging her to head off and to head back to her own room in the hotel... I got back into bed, and I reflected. God, he's a little bit of a killjoy, isn't he? Now, the Christians that James is writing to in this letter, they were thinking the same sort of thoughts that I was thinking in that hotel bed about God as as, as they faced all sorts of appealing temptations. And the question is, as they're thinking all these thoughts about God, how does James respond to them? Well, have a look at what James says. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, James says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. He says, don't be deceived about God. And what he means is that we are deceived about God if we think that God is a killjoy. And the reason for that is because of the next verse, verse 17. Have a look at verse 17. This is the truth. This is the truth about God. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. James says God's not a killjoy. No. No, God is a Father who gives us good and perfect gifts. I mean, take me in my big hotel bed, just as an example. God says, don't have sex before marriage or outside of marriage. Why does he do that? Is it just because he's a killjoy? No. 
God says that because he knows what is best for us. Because it reduces heartache. It reduces the huge pain when breakups happen. It stops a greater number of children growing up with the challenge of not living with both their parents. It greatly reduces the number of abortions. God isn't a killjoy. God knows what is best. You see, everything, even the things that might seem so, so restrictive, like not getting drunk, like keeping sex for within marriage, even those things that that seem so restrictive, actually everything is our Father giving us good and perfect gifts. And you know, the most fundamental gift of all, it is mentioned in the very next verse. Look at verse 18. Verse 18, it says, He, that's God, He chose to give us, it's a gift, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. And this word of truth, this word of truth, it is a message about Jesus. It's a message of a God who gave up the majesty of heaven to come to this earth and be one of us. It's the message of a God who gave up his life to death on a cross to die for your sin and my sin. This is a God who is not out to spoil our fun. God is not trying to ruin our lives but he's giving us life itself. Now contrast that with verse 15. Just look back to verse 15. It says there, actually, God isn't the ultimate killjoy. It says sin is the ultimate killjoy. Look at verse 15. Sin, says James, sin, when it is full grown, sin gives birth to death. I mean, seriously, which birth do you and I actually want to experience? Do we want to be experiencing a birth that leads to death, verse 15? Or do we want to be experiencing a birth, verse 18, a birth through the word of truth that leads to eternal life? I mean, they are a complete contrast, aren't they? Which birth do you and I want to be experiencing? And so if I may, this evening, I want to ask very, very clearly to each one of you, I want to say, are you currently being deceived about God? Because verse 16 says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. And you and I, we are being deceived about God. We are being deceived if we found ourselves having too low a view of God, seeing God as a killjoy. Or, the flip side of the same coin, if we found ourselves having too high a view of ourselves, thinking we can do fine without God. You see, some of us here, some of us, we will be right in the middle of being dragged into sin. We'll be right in the middle of being dragged into sin and dragged away from God. And just look back, just look to verse 14, just at the bottom of the page of the previous column. Look at the verse 14, it says, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire. You and I, we will be dragged away if we think too highly of ourselves. We'll be dragged away if we, if we don't recognize that within every single one of us here, within us there are desires which are evil. That's relevant to all of us. It's certainly relevant to me. Uh, earlier this week, I heard such an encouraging testimony from someone uh, in our church family. His, his testimony about overcoming his addiction to pornography. Now, it is, it's still a battle for him, as I'm sure it is for quite a few people in the church family. 
But what I was really struck by, as he shared so openly, so honestly with a group of people in the church, what I was struck by was what he said about how he had begun to overcome this problem of addiction to porn. You see, it started, it started him being able to overcome this addiction. It started when he began to have a lower view of himself and a higher view of God. As he said, God, I cannot overcome this addiction in my own strength. God, I I can see that there are these evil desires within me. And God, I recognize that you're majestic, that you're glorious, that you're mighty, that you are the father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God, as I recognize that you're not a killjoy, but you are wanting the best for me, and I cannot sort it out for myself. It was then that change started to happen. And I reckon that for so many of us, whatever the battle is, whatever the challenge is, whatever the temptation is for each one of us, and for all of us, it will be all sorts of things. For some, it may be porn. For some, it will be something completely different than porn. For all of us, it is as we are willing to admit our weakness and God's strength, that is how we will begin to see breakthrough in that area that we are struggling with. So number one, please don't be deceived about God. He is the giver of joy, not the killer of it. Second, second, don't be deceived about the Bible. Look down to verse 22, if you would. Here's our second mention of the word deceive. James says this, verse 22. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. I remember as a a teenager going uh, interrailing around Europe with a couple of friends, and we were in Florence. And as sort of older teenagers do, we were having a debate between the three of us about whether to buy warm beer or warm wine. Um, and uh, the two of us thought warm wine, and one guy, Ian, thought warm beer. So uh, the two outvoted the one, and there we were, walking along this road in Florence um, with our warm wine, with Ian in a sulk behind because he hadn't got his warm beer. Okay. Now then, just to increase the injustice of it all, a pigeon decided to use Ian for target practice. And he was hit with the most enormous sliming pigeon poo that I think I've ever seen. Now, what did he do? What did he do? Well, immediately, of course, he looked in the shop window. He looked at himself, saw he was a complete mess, saw where the pigeon poo was. And he took his T-shirt off, and he washed his T-shirt and his hair in the nearest fountain in Florence. He, he, he saw where the mess was and he did something about it. But so often, what do we do with what's in here? So often, what do we do? We look at it, we see that we're a mess, we're a complete mess, it's all over us, we're a complete mess. But then we just do nothing. We just walk away. Do nothing about the mess that we've seen. Just look back at verse 23. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror 
and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. I remember a really searching question that um, just hit me so powerfully when I first heard it and still hits me every time that I think on it. And the question is this. It's very simple. It is, can you think of one thing? Can you think of one thing that you have changed in your life? One thing maybe that you've done differently in the last month as a result of what you've read or heard in the Bible? Can you think of one thing that you have changed in the last month? And I know for me there are many, many months when I cannot think of a single thing that I have done differently. Now James says we are deceived about the Bible if we don't do what the Bible says. You know, quite a few people, just, even just over the last few weeks, actually, they've come to me and, and thanked me recently for the preaching in this church. And I do think we've got a great team of preachers, which is so, so encouraging. I'm so thankful to God for each one of them. But nearly always, when someone comes and says that, they say the teaching is so great in the church, the teaching is really challenging. And it, I'm so pleased about that. I'm really encouraged that people come to me and say that. God's word, it should challenge us as well as comfort us. But here's my fear when people say that. I, I don't know if you've watched any Mr. Beans recently, but um, uh, in our family, we've got, we've got quite a wide range of children from age 13 down to three. And Mr. Bean is the only TV program that we can watch that actually the whole family enjoy. Okay? So the three-year-old loves it, thinks it's brilliant. The 13-year-old loves it, and the 42 and 43-year-old love it too. So we can all sit there, and it's the only thing we watch. So we've been watching quite a lot of Mr. Bean recently. And uh, there's one episode of Mr. Bean where um, he's standing on the roadside, and he meets this man, and suddenly this man has a heart attack, and he is... Just this man is lying comatose on the pavement. And so Mr. Bean thinks, what do I do? So he goes to his little mini car and he gets out his jump leads. And he goes to the nearby lamppost and he plugs the one end of the jump leads into the lamppost. And then he's got the two bits of jump lead there. And then he goes to the man and he basically just zaps the man. Okay, So he goes there and he zaps the man like that. And as you can see, the, the man sort of writhes and wriggles. And, and, and then he takes the jump leads off and the man just goes flat, comatose again. So Mr. Bean thinks, well, I've got to do it a bit, bit stronger. So even more violently, he goes in, and he's just zapping him away, and the man's waving around all over the place, and then he takes it off, and he's still comatose. And this happens time and time and time again. And you know, my fear is that actually, as we preach God's word at HTC, as we read God's word by ourselves, that actually that is all that happens with us. As we hear a a challenging sermon, it challenges us. It it wakes us up a bit. We enjoy the thrill. We enjoy the the feeling of being zapped by God's word. But then when the sermon finishes and we walk out, it makes no difference. We're still lying comatose on the floor. You see, we are deceiving ourselves if we remain comatose. We're deceiving ourselves if we continue to let the pigeon poo sit all over us and don't do anything about it. We are deceiving ourselves if we look in the mirror and we forget what we look like. We are deceiving ourselves if we are not looking to do what God's word says. So don't be deceived about God. Don't be deceived about the Bible. And then thirdly, don't be deceived about your faith. Don't be deceived about your faith. Now, most of us here, I guess, most of us know that the Christian faith, it's not about religion, but it's about a relationship. 
You know, Christianity, it's not about external rules and rituals. It's about an internal heart relationship with God. And that is true. You know, if you look down at the bottom of the page, look at the first verse of chapter 2. At the right at the bottom of the page, what is the Christian faith about? It is about you and I being believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That is the heart of Christianity, being believers in Jesus. And yet, just look up a couple of verses to verse 26. This is the third time that the word deceive comes. Verse 26 says this. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. And literally that word there, it's deceive their hearts. They deceive their hearts and their religion is worthless. In other words, James is saying there should be a connection between what is going on in your heart and my heart and what is going on in our tongues. There's a connection between our heart and our tongue. And James is saying that we are deceived if we think that our faith is just an internal thing, that, that, it's, that it's nothing happens beyond our hearts being changed. If we think, in that little diagram there, if we think there's nothing going on above the line, that nothing externally needs to happen, if we think there's no need for our faith to make a difference in all of life, then, James says, we are being deceived. And, and so really, verse 26 Verse 26 tells us that we are deceived if we think that our faith doesn't need to have an impact on our conversation. We're deceived if we think that our faith doesn't need to have an impact on our conversation. As you look at the first half of verse 27, it's telling us that we're deceived if we think that our faith doesn't need to have an impact on our care for others, such as looking after orphans and widows who are in distress. And then the second half of verse 27 is telling us that we're deceived if we think that our faith doesn't need to have an impact on how we relate to the culture around us, not being polluted by it, but being a countercultural distinctive presence. So think of a, um, just with that slide up, just think of a, a sort of, um, think of a car and the, the petrol indicator on the dashboard. Those three C's there, they are like the, the petrol indicator on the dashboard. The petrol indicator is telling us what is going on where we can't see in the petrol tank. And our conversation, our care of others, and our interaction with the culture, those three things give us an indicator of what is going on where we can't see in our hearts. And so those three things, those three C's, they help us answer all sorts of questions. Those three C's, they help us answer a question like, do our hearts need reordering? That's the theme of this year at HTC. Do our hearts need reordering? Those three C's help us answer that question. They help us answer questions like, are we double-hearted, like Jamie was talking about last week? Are we double-hearted with a foot on God and a foot on the world? Are we double-hearted and we're just getting, you know, doing the splits and it's causing chaos? Are we double-hearted, double-minded, or are we single-minded, single-hearted, wholehearted for God, just standing on him. Those three C's, they help us answer the question, is our faith genuine or is it actually just a dead faith? Now, I haven't said loads there about this this third point. And really, that's for two reasons. Loads, loads more could be said, but two reasons why I haven't said loads. Number one, because time is about to be up. But number two, because those three points, those three C's, our conversation, our care, and our culture, they are actually, if you like, they are James's chapter headings for the rest of his letter. They are telling us what is happening in the rest of the letter. So James chapter two, which we'll look at next week, 
is all about how a real Christian faith impacts our care of other people. James chapter 3 is all about how a real Christian faith impacts our conversations, how we use our tongues. And James chapters 4 and 5 is all about how a real Christian faith impacts our attitude to the culture around us. And so over the next few weeks, we are going to be looking at each of those three things in far, far more depth. And so as I finish, what I want to do, I want to finish with a challenge for each one of us. And I think the best way of trying to explain this challenge is to tell you about my dad. My dad, he's 81. Uh, Dad's got Alzheimer's. Uh, He's had Alzheimer's for quite a long time. Uh, His uh, short-term memory now is just so, so short. I mean, it's literally 10 or 15 seconds. So you just said you have a conversation with him. You just go round and round and round in circles, okay? So his short-term memory is, is completely gone. But physically, he's still pretty well. And so what happens, the challenge is that when you take Dad off to go to different places, what happens, Dad will just wander off. He will just wander off the whole time. And last, last week or the week before, I took Dad to watch um, Boaz, our 12-year-old, uh, in a football match that Boaz was playing in. Now, it was quite a kind of key needle match. It was this big knockout tournament between all the schools in the whole country, and it was a really key match. And uh, there was Dad, and Dad just kept on, as we were on the st- t- sidelines, just kept on wandering off. He was like, oh, there's Boaz. I'll go and talk to him. And he just marched onto the pitch, and I'd be going, no, Dad, come back here. And i just have to drag Dad back. And it was quite difficult because Dad was just like, what, what are you talking about? He just like, get off me, get off me. I want to go and do it. I can do what I want. And I'm like, no, Dad, you can't do what you want. And I'd have to pull him back. So it was a bit embarrassing. Had to keep dragging dad back off the pitch. Now, the word for deceive, the word for deceive, it literally means wandering off. Just like dad wandered off onto the pitch, that word deceive, it means wandering off. It's exactly the same word as James uses right at the end of the letter, at the end of chapter five, when he says this. He says, if someone should wander from the truth, they need to be dragged back. That's James' whole reason for writing this letter. He writes it right at the end. He says, this is why I'm writing the letter. If someone should wander off, they need to be dragged back. And so here's the challenge for us. Just like I, as my dad, wandered off onto the pitch to talk to Bo, so I needed to drag him back. So that is what needs to happen for each one of us. And it's quite a challenge, isn't it? Because it is a dent to our pride to be told that we've been deceived, that we're wandering off, and we need to be dragged back. I mean, to be told that you're deceived, whether you're being told that you're deceived about God, about the Bible, about your faith, or about whether you walk onto a football pitch or not, that is a challenge. It's such a challenge because it requires such humility to hear that challenge and to respond to it positively rather than just going, get off, get off, I can do what I like. It's a challenge because it requires humility. Verse 21 says, humbly accept the word planted in you. And quite frankly, if you or I, if we haven't been challenged by this Bible passage tonight, because it's pretty challenging, If you haven't seen some way that you have been wandering off and you need to be dragged back, then you have either got a pretty hard, proud heart or you're Jesus. And I don't think you're Jesus. I'm certainly not. You know, I think about myself. 
I think of those three things, I know that there are times that I think God is a killjoy. I know that there are times when I don't do what God's word says. I know there are times that I think I can just sort of, my faith can just be compartmentalized into part of my life, not all of it. I, I need to be dragged back. And now it is so humbling to hear that. To be told you've been deceived, to be dragged back is so humbling. But it's meant to drive us, not to despair, but it's meant to drive us back to God. To God who is our perfect gift-giving Father. There's no one better to be dragged back to than to be dragged back to a perfect gift-giving Father. And you know, as we are driven back to God, as we're driven back to God, as we shift from having one foot on each escalator, as we stop being deceived by the ever-changing narrative of this world, and we are brought back to stand again on the never-changing narrative of Jesus Christ, as we do that, actually we're given a charge. Just as I close, look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, God chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Why did he do that? So that we might be a kind of first fruits of all God created. The first fruits in Old Testament times, they were the first portion of the harvest. The first portion of the harvest set aside for the Lord and offered up to God. And so God, he wants each one of us here who are believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, he wants us to be the first portion for him. He wants us, you and me, to be the first fruits. He wants us to be the first portion in this world to stand on him, to stand for him, to not be double-minded, to not be deceived, but to be those who offer up our whole lives to him. Not just part of it, but to offer up our whole lives to him who first offered up his whole life for each one of us.